This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today we're talking about big ideas for little makers with author Andrea Beatty and teacher, maker, and librarian Todd Burleson. Andrea Beatty is the author of Iggy Peck Architect, Rosie Revere Engineer, and Ada Twist Scientist, and other books for young readers. Todd Burleson is the library media specialist and runs the Idea Lab at Hubbard Woods School in Winneka, Illinois. He was the school library journal Librarian of the Year in 2016 and recently published the Green Screen Makerspace Project Book. This episode was recorded on location at Todd's Idea Lab at Hubbard Woods School. As we go to schools and talk to teachers and talk to parents, people ask us, what's the right age to become a maker? And we see STEM programs being pushed in junior highs and in high schools, and that's really great. But sometimes the elementary students and even the preschool students get left out of the STEM continuum. For some reason, there's a hesitation to move it down to the elementary level. But the question is, what is a maker? What constitutes making? So our guests today are going to talk about, can even our youngest students be makers? Todd Burleson is doing some awesome things with everything from drone cages to sewing to green screens to fish. It was just such an amazing space to walk in and see the sewing machines, the books, drones, the tools, the Legos, the 3D printers... And all of them were used to help kids explore new topics and discover the maker inside of them. Right. And take things beyond what can I do with a 3D printer. And the other thing that we really loved about Todd's space is that he didn't just transform his library into a makerspace. He kept books at the center of his makerspace. We'll see how he used books like Rosie Revere Engineer to spur the learning and the STEM inquiry that he's doing. And we'll answer that burning question, what is a rigamajig? Here's our interview with Todd Burleson, teacher, maker, and librarian. So they call me the Resource Center Director. Um, It's really kind of a fancy word for librarian slash technology instructor, integrator. Um, I like to say that if it has a cord or if it's a word, I'm in charge of both of those. So if it plugs in or you can read it, I'm in charge of both of those in our school. Uh, It's going to be changing. Next year, I'm very excited. We're going to have a technology integration specialist who's going to be working with me. So I'm excited to see how that evolves into my space. But I am passionate about finding the balance between books and bytes. Fun. So you call yourself teacher, maker, librarian. Yes, in that order. In that order. So why? What does that mean? Well, um, a good friend of mine, Colleen Graves, had maker, teacher, librarian, so I had to mix it up a little bit. So I decided to be a teacher, maker, librarian. No offense to Colleen. I love that title. But honestly, I think that my, my job is, first and foremost, to be a teacher. The maker part is just 
part of my personality. So I've always been a creative kid, a creative person. And when I um, was a classroom teacher, I always was that teacher that the librarian would send the new piece of technology down because he knew I'd try it. He knew I'd explore it. So I have very little fear, which kind of can be a problem sometimes, but um, I have very little fear of technology or trying something. And so I think that's what makes me into the teacher that I am. Is there a first piece of technology you remember playing with as a kid that got you hooked? I really, I struggled with reading as a kid. And so I think um, listening to books on tape, like literally books on tape was a big breakthrough for me when I realized that wasn't cheating. I, it unlocked some, some part of literacy for me. I know. I still, when I hear that bing, I still want to turn the Absolutely. page. Absolutely. Yeah. Bing. Yeah. Turn the page. Yes. So we are sitting here in this amazing space, the library, but we're surrounded by tools and drones and sewing machines. And you call this your idea lab. So tell us about the idea lab. So the idea lab was really, it was a community creation. About four years ago, our school district was tapping into um, sort of this new movement around making. And we have a long and very proud history of being a progressive um, school district and a progressive community that um, prides itself on kids learning through doing. That history goes all the way back to um, John Dewey, the University of Chicago, Francis Parker in the city. All of those individuals were working together with our superintendent at the time, Carlton Washburn, to really develop what has become known as progressive education. So it's not new to us. It's just the, the, the most recent iteration of progressive education. So we had been doing this all in our schools already. Um, it just had a little bit more of a focus around STEAM um, and looking at the interconnectedness of that. And I think really it evolved out of the role of the librarian as being the sort of the lead integrator of technology of any sort. You know, when the uh, overhead projector came, it was the, the librarian who really helped teachers learn how to integrate that. When um, smart boards came, it was the librarian's job to help teachers integrate that and find out how they could make it part of their daily classroom. And so I just look at the new tools that are here as that they're in that same ilk. We're, we're just um, exploring them, finding ways to integrate, and then hoping and praying and, and encouraging that those tools will then make their way into the classroom. So when you took over as the in this library space, it didn't look like this. What, <laughs> what was the transformation that got it to look like what we're seeing today? Day one of my job here, um, the air conditioning wasn't working and I had a 20-pound sledgehammer and I literally um, broke the bases of all of the bookcases because they were bolted to the floor. And uh, thank goodness <laughs> I had an amazing principal who believed that that my carpentry skills were good enough um, that I could rebuild all of these bookcases and put them on um, industrial size casters and um, we built new tops and bottoms, put new oak trim on them all and now they move all over the place. And so uh, you're looking at, you know, if you look into our library right now, it's probably the sixth iteration of layout from this just this year. Uh, and I, I kind of giggle when I think of that because for almost 30 years, the space never evolved at all in that sense. I mean, the physical um, the physical space couldn't evolve because there were so many um, 
objects in its way. And so that was the biggest evolution was um, creating flexible space. And then we evolved. Um, we were Our PTO had a large chunk of money that they wanted to put into this space. And they came to me and said, do you have any ideas or dreams that you want to do? And I can show you. I have what I called my dream binder. That's about four inches thick. And I laid it on the table and opened it up and started showing them the things that I had been exploring and reading and watching and not knowing that they were going to ask me for it, but just hoping that some point I'd have the chance to do that. They were wholeheartedly behind it. We as a community went to numerous school districts around the state state of Illinois. We even went to Wisconsin. We traveled to Colorado and visited with school districts at all levels that were making these sort of changes. And we asked asked a lot of questions about what, what would you do if you could do it differently? What would you not use if you could, you know, what, what would you keep out, you know, um, for example? And we used all that knowledge to kind of develop a plan that we put into place. We made a giant transformation that summer. And then it's been an evolution every year. It keeps, you know, I like to say it keeps getting better. And the kids are becoming more enmeshed with the program. There, We were talking a little bit earlier about sewing. And, um, you know, it's a hand skill that very few people have anymore. And I'm so proud to say that this year, every student in our school from kindergarten up has completed several sewing projects. I'm most proud of the fourth graders this year who are doing a community fundraiser to raise money for a local charity. And it's a sewing project that they've worked really hard on. Um, And it's because of their skills that they've been building over these years that we can use a sewing machine and we can hand sew and and do some fairly complex projects, but um, it builds and builds and builds and builds. And that's just that evolution of space and time that I think the kids are, are part of. Makes me so happy. So with a sledgehammer and a dream. (laughs) (laughs) I think that would make an awesome, um, that would be a great first line of a novel. I had a sledgehammer and And I had a dream. And a dream. I had a sledgehammer and a sweaty dream. (laughs) Yep. There's lots of books here, but there's also lots of tools here. So what's, what's your favorite tool that you're working with right now? Well, I was showing you guys the um, rigamajig cranky contraption that I was working on with some kids this um, past couple weeks. And I would say that rigamajig remains one of those tools that I find can be used for so many purposes to build big prototypes. I would say that's one of my all-time favorite tools, but I'd, I'd have to say the sewing machine is is pretty is pretty uh, up there right now. And then, of course, I would also say the drones, which are kind of like the uh, icing on the cake for our coding program. You know, we start with robot turtles or Kibo in kindergarten. And then by fourth grade, kids are using Tinker to program a drone to fly through obstacle courses. So I think it's it's a fitting uh, way for them to end their time here at Hubbard Woods. So a long time ago, when we first talked on the phone, you mentioned the rigamajigs and you talked about a project that came about with your students because the rigamajigs were so hard to put away. Ah, yeah. Do you want to talk? That's, I think, the project. We still, to this day, talk about yeah. the rigamajig project. And so, tell yeah. Us a little well, bit about when you that. said rigamajig project, I wasn't sure what you meant because there've been so many. <laughs> there've been so many. Um, I mean, literally. I mean, I was telling you guys or telling Andrea earlier that we teachers wanted to build wagons and so kids prototype wagons and then we ended up creating actual wagons for their classrooms our music teacher was going to buy benches on amazon and i'm like don't buy them <laughs> we'll make them and he's like what are you talking about oh okay we built them out of rigamajig we have the tools yeah, we, we can, can do, it. do it so we built prototypes out of rigamajig and then we physically built the benches and it was just awesome but the project you're talking about was really you know we we love rigamajig but 
it's a pain in the rear to put away. And even if you ask the kids, you know, you kind of show them how to do it. It's just hard when you have 20 kids trying to put something away. So we ended up kind of like prototyping some different systems and pegboard is a great tool. And uh, we started with a pegboard wall and it it wasn't big enough um, to hold the rigamajig. And so we kind of like had to like, oh no, what do we do? And so we had some leftover pegboard and we kind of slapped it on some, uh, made a little, basically a stand or a cart out of it. And then the kids realized that, oh my gosh, these can wheel around. And so, you know, with the kids' help, we ended up creating these four carts that we actually trace the outline of the rigmajig pieces, just like, you know, your dad's tool bench when you're a kid. And uh, the kids can now put every piece away um, efficiently. You can spread those out so that, you know, kids don't have to like clamor around one area. And then it also makes it fun for when we are building, they can just wheel those carts around the library and take the parts that they need. So it was a real, you know, legitimate use of um, creative problem solving around a tool that they like to use and learning how to put things away and, and take care of them is also a big part of project-based learning. You have to have you have to have the tools, but you also have to know how to care for and keep the tools. And what grade level were these kids? That was kind of a mixture. So you know, we're a K-4 school, so it ended up being like over the course of a week or so that we kind of figured it out. So all grade levels kind of participated at their their various abilities and stuff. Well, I like it because so we work with all grade levels at at NIU and. Sometimes we get pushed back when we say, let's do this with elementary, let's do it with the younger kids. And people are like, no, no, middle school and high school is where you need to start making because the, the younger kids just, you know, they're, they're going to be distracted and they're gonna, it's going to be too hard to teach them. So can littles be makers? I think just look around. Look at my blog and see the stuff that they've been doing, mm-hmm. that they are doing. I love Twitter because it's a, like a micro blog. Uh, and I feel like I don't, we're all busy. I don't have times, you know, as much time as I'd like to, to write blog posts. But, man, I can tweet out, you know, a quick run of what's going on. And, you know, my Twitter feed is a, is a running log of what kids are doing in our spaces. And so I think kids can do a lot more than we think they can. And I think we do them a disservice by not, not challenging them. Uh, and yeah, it might be hard, um, but that's part of learning is to learn to, you know, you've seen the acronym fail is just the first attempt in learning. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's, um, you know, teaching kids perseverance. Um, I, this sewing project has not been easy. I mean, I've rebuilt three sewing machines over the course of this <laughs> last five weeks. And I feel like I'm on a pit crew at NASCAR, you know, when it is time to be working on a sewing machine. I get a kid, you know, I need help. I feel like I roll over and, you know, <laughs> rip the machine apart and get it back together and get it going. And it's not that they can't, you know, th- that's something I've trained them in how to r- fix the machine. But there are some things that, you know, are beyond, you know, your basic mm-hmm. repair. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes I have to take the whole bobbin casing out and everything but they know how to do that basic repair because i've taught them and they know how to do that so i i think they're only limited by how we limit them is my my belief i I love that we we put limits on them that we shouldn't absolutely just stand back i'm continually blown away by um, what they can do when you give them the chance so what were some of the outcomes of the Rigamajig project? Well, we've had uh, multiple Skype sessions with the inventor, Cass, Cass Holman, and the people at Rigamajig. And we've talked about, you know, they, they just came out not too long ago with like their science simple machines extension kit. And we didn't have a lot to do with that, but we got, I think we encouraged them to get it out because we kept asking them what's next. We want to, we want to know how we can, you know, extend this with, with new tools. I don't want to give the kids here credit for coming out with that, but I think we helped encourage. <laughs> 
encourage them to kind of push it out sooner. And we got like some of the first runs of the of the material, so that we could kind of give them our feedback. Um, I also think that you know the it just it was I think mind blowing for my kids to Skype with uh, the inventor in Connecticut from her studio and talk about, you know, like kids are asking questions like, well, you know, you said these are all made in the United States. So where from, you know, like they had some really inquisitive wow. and Cass is like, okay, so the, the wood comes from here. The plastic comes from here. And she was able to explain each of the parts, but the kids had, you know, you know, once they got over the awe, the shock and awe of like meeting a really amazing person, they then got into the, the nitty gritty of, you know, like the background, and where it comes from and you know why do the pieces have this many holes and you know why are there some that have you know a hole there where others have you know a square piece and Cass was able to answer the questions or some of them she was just like I don't know it just ended up being that way and I think that's a great answer but um, I think it just goes to show that kids kids can not only be consumers but creators Mm -hmm. with the material and I think that for a person like Cass who designs these sorts of tools for kids, I think it was really neat for her to see what the kids were doing and thinking and saying. And, you know, I, I know that she probably eats that up. You know, it probably helps power her soul into what she's doing. Well, and how exciting is that for the students to see that this isn't just a project for the classroom. They can be a part of that problem solving. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about not just being consumers, but creators. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's so important for the youngest kids to realize that you know um, the big big new thing out right now is the merge cube and um, I attended a webinar last night about how kids can create content for the merge cube and of course they were talking about middle school and high school kids Mm -hmm. and my questions were like hey I got little guys what can we do and it challenged some of them and so I'm I'm looking forward to you know Apple just came out with that new AR toolkit I want to figure out how my kids can start digging into that because I think there's some some fun possibilities with that. So as we sit in the space where ideas and innovation are happening all over over, we also know that at the core are all of these books. Absolutely. So how do you keep books at the center of all of the learning experiences? Almost every exploration we have starts with a, a book. And I am a, a passionate picture book lover. And I think that they should be used at all ages, not just kindergarten through third grade. I, I strongly believe that the messages and the visuals are so powerful for, you know, middle school and even high school students. Um, and so we begin with a picture book. Um, so, for example, when we started our apron project, I read to them uh, Bruno the Tailor, which is about a little beaver who creates an apron for himself, and he goes through every step of the process. And it was awesome because then my kids went through every step of the process. But again, there's that literacy connection. You know, you, you look at a book like um, Everybody Tweets, which just came out here recently, and it's basically a book about digital citizenship. And you, I could make kids watch a boring video even the you know most engaging video is not nearly as fun as me reading a book to them about a topic in a kind of a disengaged way but in the end they realize that the message is what you do online can hurt other people and that's a fantastic message to be able to send in a picture book to the youngest kids but also our fourth graders who many of them are starting to you know engage in social media (laughs) yeah starting to tweet even they're not supposed to but we ended up doing a project with that called a a tweet book review 
So now kids created, I kept them to 140 characters. I know you can do 280 now, but I kept them to 140 characters and they tweeted out a book review about a picture book. And so they studied the book, they came up with the message, the core principles of it, and we we had a lot of fun with Jimmy Fallon's hashtag. I don't know if you've seen that before. All but the last two seconds with um, Questlove, they they kind of bleep it out, but (laughs) they used hashtags to like score certain points in the story. So, you know, if, uh, if it was really about friendship, they would do hashtag friendship or hashtag be nice <laughs> to your friends or whatever it was. But so, it, you know, it was just another way for them to engage with a book, mm-hmm. share it in a way that was interesting. And what we're working on right now is having them read those tweets, record it, stick that into their Seesaw portfolios, which generates a QR code. And we're going to take that QR code and merge it with HP Reveal oh, wow. so that when you when you hold your camera phone over the the QR code, you'll not only hear the audio, but it will go to a vi- an act the actual video of the kid reading the tweet about the book. And we're going to post those all over the library near the books. The kids can come into our library, grab a device, and not only get 60, 70 book talks about the books that are going on, but see their colleagues, their, their classmates talking about the book. And it's it's just a little bit more fun than the traditional book report. Mm-hmm. And it's 140 characters, so they think, oh, this isn't that hard. I can do that. Right. But what they don't realize is they just did a book review. And they did it in a way that's engaging for their audience. To me, that's like how you, again, keep the literacy at the core. Every exploration we do starts with a, with a text. You know, we have Andrea Beatty sitting across from me here. And, you know, Rosie Revere <laughs> Engineer, you know, is one of our favorites. You know, talking about failure and we're we're flying drones in here. Uh, and so we talk about persistence, you know, which is the theme of so many of those books. But it all starts with a text. So what advice would you give to others who want to become teacher, maker, librarians and create a space like this for learning for their students? The best advice I've ever gotten is start small and be vulnerable. Uh, and vulnerability is something as teachers, we are. it's really a tough one. I think as humans, it's hard to be vulnerable because it shows that we can fail and it shows that we don't know what, we've, what we're doing all the time. And I think as teachers, we often think we have to know what we're doing all the time. And the day I sat down with my kids and said, for example, Bloxels, one of the tools that you just mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, I said to the kids, hey, I build a basic game. Here it is. I really don't understand this, you know, how to make it fancy. Can you guys help me? And they were like, oh, yeah, come here. Let me show you. And then within minutes, my game had like upped its beautification level. You know, I had the basic pieces. I knew how to block code it in. But when I asked the kids for help, it became a learning opportunity for me and they were the teacher. And so I think being vulnerable to allow your children to help you learn is also just as important as we think about how to teach our kids. We need to teach our kids that it's okay to be vulnerable and learn. We ask them to do it every day. So we have to model that for them. That's my best advice. Great advice. And it got you the School Library Journal School Librarian of the Year Award in 2016. Woo woo, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, I, the only thing I just would say is it. One of the questions you were thinking about asking was how has it changed my life, mm-hmm. and I would say that um, I've never worked harder. <laughs> since that award because I think when you reach something like that I think you feel like oh my gosh now I really have to be amazing and I'm not I mean I'm just me and I do my I do what I do and I um, am proud of my work but I'm also I'm just me you know and 
to be able to sit across from you guys and Andrea Beatty and, you know, to do some of the things that I've been able to do over the last couple of years, write a book, um, you know, being published in multiple magazines and things. It's just, it's amazing. And I just want to, I don't want to lose momentum because I feel like I want to share what I'm doing and, and what I'm learning and what I feel like other people are doing so well. That's, that's just a, it's kind of like my mission just to keep the momentum going and share and learn and grow as much as I can. Well, we look forward to seeing what is on the horizon because it's been exciting thus far. Lots of good stuff is coming. Yes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hosting us and talking with us today. You bet. You just heard our interview with Todd Burleson, teacher maker librarian at Hubberwood School in Winnetka, Illinois. He was the School Library Journal Librarian of the Year in 2016 and recently published the Green Screen Makerspace Project book. Up next is our interview with author Andrea Beatty. Kristen, one of the things I really liked about what Todd said was that kids should get splinters. Not that we want to inflict pain on (laughs) kids and put them in, you know, strap them to chairs and uh, make them get splinters. But I love the idea of of kids getting their hands dirty and and really sitting in and thinking about what it means to make. And I loved the idea that he used sewing as a part of making. We really have thought about makers as being people who are in these fab labs doing 3D printing and things like that. But it's a much broader definition. I think sometimes as adults, we forget that it's okay for kids to make mistakes, to get a splinter, to use a needle and thread to try to sew. It's important that the kids have the opportunity to try these things out themselves, make mistakes, learn from their mistakes, try new things that they might not have thought about trying, encourage them in a safe environment, but also let them explore with tools under the proper supervision. Sure. We're not going to let them run around the library with chainsaws. Put the drill down. (laughs) I mean, maybe no chainsaws until sixth grade. Chainsaws, sixth grade, I think that's about right for the chainsaws. (laughs) With a signed permission slip, of course. Exactly. And training in uh, use of tourniquets, I think. But he brought up a good point when sometimes we think, well, they're too young to try that. Sometimes these younger kids can do some really amazing things. Our next guest has embraced that idea of young people making and doing. Andrea Beatty is the author of Iggy Peck Architect, Rosie Revere Engineer, and Ada Twist Scientist, as well as other books for young readers. In Rosie Revere and Iggy and Ada, they're all amazing kids who have great ideas about how they want the world to work. And they have to help the adults and other kids around them kind of come around to their way of thinking. But they do it with a plucky attitude and lots of creative ideas. Should be our our new slogan. We do it with a plucky attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Making mistakes with a plucky attitude. (laughs) Right. But as we know from Rosie Revere, the only true failure can come if you quit. Here's our interview with Andrea Beatty. On the STEM Read podcast, we're really interested in people's origin stories. So how did you become a writer and why did you choose this path? I don't know that I actually did choose this path. I think it just accidentally happened. Um, When I was a kid, I literally wanted to be everything. I mean, so my name is Mary Andrea, and my nickname was Mario Andretti. So, of course, I wanted to be a race car driver and a farmer 
and a deep sea diver and a veterinarian because I read all of the James Harriet books. And that was about high school time. So I really got into biology and thought for about 30 seconds about being a vet. Um, and then I, so I went into biology and, and college at Carbondale at SIU and um, studied biology, but also got almost a double major in computer science. I think I lacked a math class and never quite got up and did it because, I don't know, shiny, I'll go over there and do that instead. <laughs> I always sort of let myself be distracted and follow things that were interesting to me. So I followed those things because they were interesting. And when I got out of school, I ended up, and one day I got two job offers. One was for um, a biology lab assistant at Monsanto, I think. And the other was to do computer science stuff for a, a software company. Not to say that either one paid much, but the computer science job paid 10,000 bucks more a year. And I said, well, sold American. So I had the highest bidder. And I became the IT help person. So I was on the phone. Did you turn it off and on again? That was, that was my job. But along the way, I got the chance to do a newsletter. And it was, you know, tech writing. The topics were so boring. It literally were coma-inducing. But I took it very seriously, and I really, I got a lot of books on editing. I read them all. I read Strunk and White, front to back. And I've always read a ton. I've always been a big reader. And I always loved writing, but never really thought about doing writing for, you know, any real purpose. But what I did was really take it to heart and become a ferocious editor. And so the process of doing that, ultimately, I did that job for a few years, had kids, left the workforce, and then started reading picture books and fell in love with them. Just like Todd said, they are magical. They are just such an art form, but they really have such power in a way that I it wasn't a thing when I was a kid. We certainly had books, had picture books, and we had tons of books in our houses, in our house. But um, I really didn't know it as an art form and just the real power of it. And so I kind of got hooked and started writing. And what I what I found was that all of those skills of being a tech writer were exactly what I needed to be a good kids writer. You know, you have to be straight to the point. You have to be interesting enough that people don't actually die of boredom while they're reading what you're trying to say. You have to get to the point. Because kids aren't going to stick around for an hour. They're going to stick around 20 pages to figure out what the book's about. So, in fact, I've kind of lost my ability to, <laughs> to read really, you know, a lot of adult fiction. I have to really be in the mood because, you know, five pages <laughs> in, what is this about? <laughs> it makes me cranky. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it just kind of happened. I had no intention really of ever, it was not my life stream to become a writer. I never really even thought about it. But once I started writing stories, the more I wrote, the more ideas I got and I just finally thought, well, gee, I'm having a lot of fun with this. I wonder if somebody else might be interested. So I started sending them out, and well, here I am now. <laughs> and no one is more surprised or delighted than I am by the process, and that this happened, and it's crazy. And it worked out. It worked out okay. <laughs> it seems to be working out. Yeah. yeah, you know, for me, it's it's been this endless source of delight that the unexpected and really delightful ways that these books have popped up, like coming here today and seeing this amazing space, this amazing ma makerspace and the library. I was over there like, ooh, I don't have that book. I need that book. I need that book. Uh, but how they're connected and to see that, that my books are, are involved in that, that's delightful. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. So you were a TED 
You were Fireman Ted, Artist I, Ted. I was Ted. <laughs> I was Fireman Artist. You pick it. Yeah, I mean, just always the, ooh, that sounds fun. And the thing is, you know, so I think about all these things I imagine myself being. And it turns out that as a writer, I get to do that. So now I still do that. I think, well, gee, what it would, it, would it be like to be a, an engineer? Okay, I'll write a story about that. And then sort of I get to live that, that for a day. And then I sort of move on to the next thing. And it's, it's great fun. Mm-hmm. So on your website, you talk about traipsing through the fields and forests. And um, how did that influence what you write? Or did it influence what you write, being from a small rural community? Uh, it in every possible way. So I was one of six kids, and we didn't have a lot of money, and it was a very long time ago. You know, dinosaurs roaming the earth and all of that. (laughs) Um, But we didn't have 24-7 amusements. There, you know, there was no internet. There were really computers at that point. Their TV for kids was literally from 3.30 till 5 o'clock when the news came on. So that was Gilligan's Island, and that was, you know, the Brady Bunch, and, you know, maybe something else. So we had to go out and make our own amusements. And the process of doing that was incredibly good for our imaginations. If you you want to do something fun, go create it. So it it was just up to us. And that that really, I think, made an enormous difference. So my mom would always say, if we said, I'm bored, she would say, only boring people get bored. (laughs) We took that to heart. Also, she would say, go mop the kitchen floor. So Mm -hmm. one of those was a pretty good uh, motivator Mm -hmm. to to not sit there and whine about being bored. And I I think that I'm a writer today because of that, because I had time to fill. And I tell kids, I tell this to kids when I do presentations that let yourself get bored. Now, once in a while, I have a kid, almost every time I'll have a kid say, I'm bored right now. (laughs) Thanks, kid. Thank you. Well, my work here is done. (laughs) I'll be here all week, Mm. kids. You can stay too. (laughs) Golly. Um, But that's that's a big thing. And I think kids are so overscheduled so often, or they're just the realities of their, their daily life does not permit them to have time to just do nothing in a space that's not filled automatically with, you know, video games or whatever. And video games are great fun. I love them. They're fabulous. But having time to just let your brain do nothing. Because what I tell them, and I think it's true, is your brain can't do nothing. As soon as you sort of clear it out, ideas will start coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think also books are an essential part of that because... They help you when you're when you're reading a book, even a picture book. Your brain has to sort of fill in the gaps, and a lot of times in a picture book, that's gaps in the story because the text can be very spare. But you have to also make those connections between the illustrations and the text. Um, or in a novel, you have to provide the scenery. You have to provide all the visuals that go with that, and that is incredibly um, heartening and invigorating for your brain. It's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I want to go back to the idea of technical writing being like picture book writing. And I think people read picture books to their kids and they're like, oh, this is easy. This is like 300 <laughs> words. I could do this. Um, and then you sit down to write one and you're like, oh, no, this is really hard. This, it's the strunk and white. You know, you have to uh, omit unnecessary words. It's, it's only yeah. the essentials, but the essentials has to be that every word tell, you know. And that is a lot like technical writing. I used to write release notes for software software updates at a healthcare software company and you had 300 words to tell people what was going to happen so they could save a patient's life. Exactly. No pressure. Nothing. 
right. Nothing yeah. could go wrong there. Yeah, but so what are what are some of those traits? You talked about them a little bit, but um, what are some of those traits in technical writing that that really inform your picture book writing? The first one is actually just being a ferocious editor and taking out everything you don't need. So within a sentence, like if if I look at a manuscript, I will take out, if I write 100 words, I will take out 50 of those words and then maybe put back another five or 10. But it's looking that every word is actually the right word you need, no matter how big it is or how small it is, um, or even if it's a made up word, it doesn't matter, but it has to be the right word. So I, I think writing picture books particularly is like writing, like a prose picture book is writing poetry. And a rhyming picture book is like writing a song you don't get any extra space. And the shorter it is, the better, because you don't want to mess it up. So in technical writing, though, it's sort of the same thing. If you have a a long sentence and you're throwing in all these clauses and stuff, when you're trying to say, turn the machine on by pushing this button, you could simply just say, push the button, (laughs) you know, or make it short, you know, make it as short as you can, because otherwise you've just wasted a whole lot of words to get there and not made it clearer. Mm -hmm. So if you want to make put more words in and make it clearer sometimes you have to do that but yeah it's it's all about editing and I will say the best tool I found for that and the best book is just a book called edit yourself and I that I still have a copy of that book just all the words that we use that we don't really need in a sentence and sometimes you might want to go back and put them back for just for the flow of the sentence or for flavor but um, being able to to get down to bare bones you can always make something longer but get it down as short as you can mm-hmm so how long does it take you to write a book like Rosie Revere? Wow. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the shortest book time it ever took to write a book, a picture book, was Dr. Ted. And that took an hour. And the book was done. We literally, I think, changed two words in it. But boom, that book came out. Bam. Finished. Then, and so you said, this is easy. This is easy. I can do this all the Dang. time. Boom, bitty, boom. <laughs> and the third of those books was very hard. Um, it Anywhere from a couple of days to write a picture book, if the book is there, if it comes to me, sometimes a book will be, especially a rhyming book, will be like listening to music or conversations through a wall. You can kind of make out the patterns, you can kind of hear a tune, but you aren't quite, it's not quite there and clear enough to, to write with. And so I have to kind of live with it in my head for a while. So. When that happens, I don't know. I don't know how to count that time. Mm-hmm. But I guess long story short, it can be anywhere from an hour to years, two years, three years. Ada Twist took, I think, about four months to write. And the, the hardest part there was coming up with her name, figuring out, like, because when writing in rhyme, there's all kinds of additional things that have to happen. You have to have the story. You have to know who the character is. And the characters in these books are really driven by the illustrations. But until I knew her name, I couldn't quite make it all come together. And I, it had to be just the right name. So those kind of things, weird details can kind of send you off into the weeds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, let's talk about Iggy, Rosie, and Ada. So yeah. where did the inspiration for these books come from? So Iggy was inspired by my son, who, when he was a little kid, was the kid who would make things out of anything. So he would be literally going out of his gourd right here in this room right now. <laughs> He'd be like, ah. So, you know, of course, we had a million Legos and still do in our house. But, you know, we would go to restaurants and he would build towers out of the jelly packs on the table, mm-hmm. which waitresses hate. 
<laughs> for good reason, probably. Uh, but so he was that kid who just loved to, to create and build things. And so that kind of got me thinking, what if, you know, what if there, and, and all of my stories really kind of are born from that seed of what if. So what if there was a kid who was really into making things, in particular buildings, and was really into architecture. And from that, over a couple of days, I kind of started at this this book sort of showed up in this rhyme, and that was Iggy. And when I when I sold Iggy, and um, the editor chose David Roberts, who's an el- illustrator in London, to do the the illustrations, and she says, "What do you think?" And I said, "I really didn't know who he was. I'd, I'd seen his work on like the book covers of Philip Arduck's, um uh, Eddie Dickens trilogy, and they're very Edward Gorey esque, which I adore, but I couldn't quite visualize it. So I said, "Well, you know." It's absolutely fantastic. Yes, please. But I really did not have a clue how perfect he was going to be for this because all of his designs are really rather architectural and very, very high design level. And that comes from him having actually been a um, studying fashion illustration in college. That was that was his thing. So he's like, all the people in these books are so well-dressed. <laughs> Everything is so stylish. And that is just born from David, uh, his background. So, so after we did Iggy and we talked about doing another book about Iggy and I thought about it and I felt like I'd already done that story. Mm-hmm. So I just like, uh, tried for a couple of years and then we kind of hit on the same idea, the editor and I, about looking at the other kids in that class. Because David Roberts brought back from just the text in Iggy Peck, he brought back this marvelous class of every kind of kid. And it's, it was just delightful. And there's nothing, you know, I never include text notes to say, oh, give us a marvelously diverse class, or make sure the <laughs> teacher has a bun on her head, or any of those kind of things. That's very not cool for an author to do that, because that's, that's his land of magic, David's zone genius, and so I can't, there's nothing I'm going to do to add to his talent and what he's going to do. But I started looking at the illustrations, and when I saw, every kid shows up four times in Iggy Pack, and so I sort of, like for months, just lived with their pictures on my wall, and like, who are you, who are you, who are you? And then I noticed the little girl who ends up being Rosie. You never see both of her eyes. And I thought, what's the deal? What is that about? So I'm thinking, huh, she sits there, she's the smallest kid, but she sits there so bunched up, like, please don't call on me, <laughs> uh, like trying to be invisible. And I thought, okay, she is shy, but there's also more than that. So what was the story? What led her to that? And that's really where the story came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really I was writing that, and I got stuck. I knew there had to be something that she would need to build. I made her an engineer because I wanted to see what David would do with the illustrations because I knew he'd make something wacky, which he did. It was great. But I really got stuck in the what was that going to be and how would the story come together after that until I had I was talking with my aunt and my aunt Emmeline who had been a Rosie the Riveter and I got to thinking about that you know just the debt that we owe to the women who, who did so much to save the planet and to the men who fought in the war as well and the women who helped with that effort as well but we really can't do enough to say thank you and I wanted to do that so that's why I put Rosie the Riveter as great Aunt Rose in the story and as soon as that happened boom that book just fell to place it just snap together and I just it felt right so that's where that's where Rosie and her great aunt came from and then Ada came from the illustrations in Iggy Peck where there's you know they're building this bridge and everybody's doing something they're picking things up and they're collecting things except the one little African-American girl in the red and white dress 
and she stands there tapping her chin. And I thought, <laughs> what is her story? She's curious. She's the maker. She's the, the person who's just full of questions. Mm-hmm. She's thinking, how can this be better? Why is that going? So that's why she's a scientist. So now the, the, the fun is just looking at these kids, and in each story, David brings back more information, more things that he doesn't tell me. I mean, he just hides them in the illustrations. And then I have to sort of tease out, like, who is that? What are they... You know, what's their deal? So it's cool. So how much do you collaborate? Is it is it very much you send him the story and then you get the full book back and then you, the next book kind of becomes a love letter to the illustrations? It, it, that is certainly how it began and how it has evolved. Uh, and in, in that process in the middle is the editor. So certainly Iggy came just from the the text and the editor and the art director would work with David and I really don't know how much feedback they gave him on things but I didn't see any art until I think it was finished art that I saw so it's sort of like whoa massive surprise every time that shows up Mm. so but we've been working together for 10 years now and over time it has become a little more back and forth but each of us and it's so funny because each of us reveres the other one's space so I never want to step on his toes or in any way influence you know what he's going to do because I know he's going to be amazing and lead me to new places so I always feel like I'm sort of playing catch up Mm -hmm. or maybe leapfrog is the is a better description of it and he feels the same way but we've been able to meet a couple of times and uh, I talked to him last summer and I said you know David we've been working together for 10 years and I never want to step on your toes and and anyway like you know derail or or try to bring to bear my my thoughts on what things should be like I want to see what you do and he's like well I'm the same way and I said (laughs) but having said that what can you tell me about the people and he goes oh Andrew you know I would never want to influence anything that you do you're doing just you just keep doing what you're doing it's just right but now that you ask (laughs) (laughs) so for the first time we started sort of talking about well what if and he gave me some things that he knows about some of the other characters and from that then uh, is born the next character and I cannot tell you who it is secrets but I know so many secrets but the book (laughs) is written and he's about to start on the art for it that will be out the end of 2019 I think um, so it has become this this sort of collaborative. It's almost like co-parenting is, I think, the best analogy. Mm-hmm. There are things that I know about these kids and this world that they live in, this Blue River Creek, which is full of, I think, sassy grown-up versions of all of these kids mm-hmm. who each on their own have these passions, like Great Aunt Rose. I mean, that, that lady's got some stories to tell, I'm sure of it. And I want to know what they are, but, you know, for now we're doing the kids. But... Um, I just think, I don't know, it's this fun, weird thing that just kind of has grown. Now now it's very organic. And I think that that is why it probably works so far and hopefully will continue to work. Because the the other thing about these books is that even though they are about architecture and they're about, um, you know, science and engineering, it's not really what they're about. Like Iggy is about passion. He just happens to be an architect. But every kid has a passion of something. Every kid is just consumed with something, whatever that is. You know, like I meet kids and I say, what is it you make? What is it you do? And they all have a thing. I make red flowers. Never putting blue in it. I'm not going to put green in it. I make red flowers and I make them out of cardboard rolls and I use red paper. 
you know, whatever the thing is, every kid has passion. So they can relate to Iggy on some level, whether or not their thing is architecture, they can understand having a love for something. And for Rosie, every kid is, has met with failure and been frustrated or just feel like whatever they do doesn't work. And so they can connect to, to Rosie and every kid is curious. Like every kid is a scientist. I mean, oh my gosh. And I, I think that's one of the things that I so enjoyed hearing Todd talk about, this idea of vulnerability and how as adults we think that kids expect us to know everything and in fact it works out so much better when we can just show that we don't know we are on this journey as well figuring things out and i think one of the biggest things that we can do as a society maybe as a you know as human beings is to help really show that to kids at very very young age so you know, this this really shows itself, I think, in the way girls in STEM, there's this delay, there's this, there's this thing that happens with girls where they sort of fall off the STEM bandwagon after, you know, fifth grade. And what we're finding is that it starts so, so much earlier than that. Like there was a study last year that showed that girls already by the time they're four, five, six years old, think that they are not as good at STEM as boys. Well, based on what? You know, that is getting feedback from lots of different sources to have them even begin to think that. So I think we have to start at such an early age, like, you know, as, as babies, basically. But I think with science, we have a problem where parents, caregivers, early educators, babysitters, whoever, whoever those gatekeepers are for little tiny kids, they don't necessarily feel confident in their ability to deal with STEM, to teach kids about science, to teach kids about engineering or any of these things. But I think that's because everyone thinks of science as a what, about learning a what. So if you ask them, what do you think, like, why, if a kid comes to their adult and says, why is the sun red when it goes down at night? Why is the sunset red? And if they don't remember their fifth grade science where they taught that, they'll be like, uh. <laughs> and there's this panic instead of I don't know. Let's find out. Mm -hmm. And if, if we as adults can just get comfortable with saying to kids, I don't know, let's figure it out. Well, how do we do that? I don't know. Let's mm -hmm. figure it out. Suddenly, by making ourselves vulnerable and, and just saying, you know, we show them that it's just a process. And I think when we can overcome that, a lot of these other things are just going to melt away. We could just be open and vulnerable and just show kids, I don't know, I'm learning this stuff too. And how empowering is that? Suddenly you have a little kid who is the one who's saying, who's leading the exploration. I mean, holy cow, I'm a kindergartner and I'm going to teach mom some stuff. Oh, <laughs> yay! Right, and you have that. I would argue that there's character arcs for all of the adults in your stories. So um, <laughs> definitely <true>. Miss <laughs> Lila Greer. I mean, part of it's almost it's true. her story in a way. You know, she's the one that changes and yeah. recognizes that um, this passionate kid can change the way that she yeah. teaches and then she goes through the transformation and allows the kids to really pursue their passions 
And um, certainly in uh, Ada Twist Scientist, you have her parents saying, we'll figure it out. We'll you know, figure what, it what will out. we do for, with this curious child? <laughs> it's, it's true. I know it's an old trope in kids' books that you have to have a character who grows through the story and becomes, you know, meets a challenge and that they in some way change through it. And I find that that is almost never the case in my books <laughs> because I don't think there's anything wrong with those kids who are out there like, you know, Ted, who was, he's making some havoc, <laughs> but he isn't doing it to be mean. He's yeah. just trying to figure it out. Yeah. And isn't that what kids are doing? They're just trying to figure stuff out. And that's what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So even though it's exhausting and Ada's parents certainly get exhausted through the process of mm-hmm. just trying to keep up with their curious kid. But that's that's our job as parents and gatekeepers and educators and adults that to help kids figure it out. And when we let them do it in a way that's led by them, then that's so empowering and that's going to make them the strong adults who we're going to need to be able to take over for us, you know, from us and and do what comes next in this world. So, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. The kids are all right, man. Doing fine. <laughs> they're, they're doing what they're doing. They're doing what Leave they're Ted doing. Leave Ted alone. He'll have another career tomorrow. He'll well, figure I, it out. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I would love to see, I, and actually I do talk with a lot of people who have used picture books in high school, and I think it's for writing, but also for just getting to a direct message. And at first, you know, older kids will be like, oh, no, don't make me read a picture book. They love it. Mm. They always, always love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I had in my notes that I was thinking about was the idea of girl books versus boy books. Oh, how long do we have? Yes, let's discuss the girls' <laughs> I know, book. Yeah, we, no, we can totally. We, that, that's a very important thing. Yeah. So sometimes people will say, "Oh, Iggy Peck, that's like I'll, I'll be in a bookstore, I'll be in a library, or something, and and you know I'll be listening in as as an adult as they're talking with their kid. Oh, get that one. That's that's the." boy book. Iggy Peck is the boy book. And that's the girl book. No, they are not. (laughs) Books are books are books are books are books. And for so many reasons, it doesn't matter what the gender of the main character is. Every, there are many things here, but the, the first thing is every kid should be able to see themselves in a book. That is so empowering and so essential. So whatever kind of kid you are, whatever shape, whatever color, whatever race, whatever, you know, shoe size, gender, don't care, you should be able to find yourself in stories. And every kid should be able to see every other kind of kid in books. So that, you know, through like David's art, where we have this incredibly diverse cast of characters, it, it becomes a non-issue because kids will look and they go, oh, yes, of course girls. Like boys will say, oh, yeah, girls can be engineers because well, Rosie did that. And girls will say, oh, yeah, girls can be engineers because Rosie did that. And it's never the point in these books. I never make, uh, never say anything about who the kid is that, you know, it's a girl being an engineer. Mm-hmm. I don't care. It's this kid. And I think it's in finding the universality of a character that, kids can always identify with that if there is something that's true in that character and if it's something they can relate to. So that's why boys love Rosie as well. They're like, oh yeah, I have been frustrated at times and I have had issues where I haven't been able to do the thing I wanted or something failed. And that's why it connects. So it's absolute. There is no such thing as girls and boys books. Stop saying that, people. (laughs) It makes me so cranky. And I think what happens is Kids miss out on great books because of that. But I also find that that is rarely coming from the kids. That is coming from the gatekeepers, from the 
parents often, you know, and parents are trying, they're out there doing their best, and it's very hard to select from books. People say don't judge a book by its cover, but I can tell you, everybody has to because there's too many of them. There's mm-hmm. not too many. There's a lot of them. <laughs> don't say that. There cannot be too many of them. But you know, you'll what I'm put saying? us out of the job. <laughs> no more books for you. Well, um, yeah, you know, you, you everybody does that, but it's, that so often comes from gatekeepers, not not usually librarians or bookstore owners. I find, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes other people. Mm-hmm. But they shouldn't because once you get into that story. If there's truth in that story, and if there's if it's a well done story, there's something there for everybody, mm-hmm. and that's important because books teach us empathy. So either they're going to teach us about ourselves, or they're going to teach us about somebody else, and both of those are really important things. And that's how we let kids grow up, without having to experience whatever is happening in that book. Pick any topic, you know, having the loss of a loved one or a pet or a cheese copter crashes, and we've all experienced that one, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can experience, we will in all of our lives go through experiences that are similar in some way, and reading books helps us prepare for that. So we can't keep kids away from that knowledge just because, oh, there's a girl on the cover, or oh, there's a boy on the cover, or there's a kid who doesn't look like me on the cover. So, yeah, we need more books all the time right now. Eat them up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, the reason um, I was thinking about it, I was at this school visit the other day, and I had two days of programs for the kids. And it was kindergarten through second grade. And um, in my second book, there's a line that says, a proper princess is always prepared. And these three boys were like, no, wrong. Princesses can't do anything. That's dumb. And I was like bringing in Rosie Revere tomorrow and we're all going to be engineers like Rosie and I didn't you know I didn't I said it in my head I yelled yeah. at them in my head and then I was just like we're being engineers today and they didn't yeah. say anything and they, they just went with it you know it's exactly uh, one, one of the people who's <laughs> has so much to say and so articulately about this is Shannon Hale and she a number of her books have a princess in the title they are mm-hmm. all fantastic action books and you know boys love them too but it's a constant thing that the gatekeepers are like no 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 that's a girl's book okay no it's not and the kids love them once they get them they love the book so mm-hmm. yeah you know and it, I think that's the thing too is that as adults it is our job that even if a kid did give you blowback on a thing if you know it's good for them if you know this is a book that they really need because there's something in there then that's our job to say ah sit down give it a try you'll see and they always do mm-hmm. don't they I mean you know Todd's nodding over there because yeah <laughs> It's true. They always do. You'll, you'll bring them along because a good story will take them. That's a, I, I truly believe, and I'm sitting here in the land, literally in this beautiful space filled with potential inventions, all the inventions throughout mankind, I truly believe that the greatest one ever was story, and it's the most powerful invention ever. Because everything we've ever made, every adventure we've ever taken uh, has been started by a story. You know, thinking about the people who are like, oh, gee, we could use more food. I can imagine that there are maybe bison across that hill. Well, they told somebody else that is a story. All right. I think there's bison over there. I think there's a bear over there. Let's go. Well, let's go the other way if there's a bear. But, you know, it all starts with a story. So it's a good thing. You just heard our interview with Andrea Beatty, author of Iggy Peck Architect, Rosie Revere Engineer, and Ada Twist Scientist, as well as other books for young readers. 
We're also excited to announce that Andrea Beatty's next book, Rosie Revere and the Raucous Riveters, is coming out in October. This is a chapter book starring Rosie Revere Engineer. So we're excited to see what Rosie does next and see how she steps up for, for the chapter book set. Andrea Beatty is also planning chapter books centering on Iggy Peck, architect, and Ada Twist, scientist. I think that our interviews with Todd and with Andrea really showed... Uh, that there is no one path to making and doing, and there is no one definition for it. You might be someone who's making quilts, you might be someone who's writing technical manuals, but all of the skills that you're developing are going to come around and to serve you in some way. And I think our job as adults who teach these young aspiring makers is to give them the tools that they need to explore different ideas, try tools they might not have thought they could use, and step out of their way and let them explore their dreams. And another great thing that we can do is show them that it's okay to fail. Let them fail, help explore their failures, and share our failures, because I think it's important for students to see that adults don't always have everything figured out. We fail a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we might not want to let them know everything that we fail at. (laughs) Or they might lose respect for us completely. It's about how we failed and learned from it and moved forward. Yes, just like great great Aunt Rose said, life might have its failures, but this is not it. The only true failure can come if you quit. See, that's what I needed. I needed that closure. (laughs) (laughs) You can find more information on our guests in our show notes at stemread.com. And congratulations to our sound engineer, Carl, and his wife on their new baby. Congratulations. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.